I want, I want, I want me, 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 mine, 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 now, now, now. You know you're responsible for what you hear. You know you're responsible for what you hear. Greetings and welcome to Thoughts from Meharry Head, the podcast where I talk about, well, whatever happens to be bouncing around inside my head at the moment, but mostly focusing on constitutional issues and political decentralization. This is episode 15 of Thoughts from Meharry Head, and I appreciate you tuning in. This week, I'm going to tell you about how centralized national power established and sustained slavery. Well, they finally took down the Confederate flag at the South Carolina State Capitol. That means we have racial harmony now, right? Well, we're getting there anyway. Of course, there's still a lot more work to do. It's going to take quite a while to completely erase the Confederacy from the pages of history, but they're working on it. They've removed the Confederate banner from National Battlefield gift shops, and here in my hometown of Lexington, Kentucky, the mayor suggested we need to reconsider Confederate memorials to John Hunt Morgan and John Breckinridge. But the city of Memphis takes the cake. In a macabre move, the city council voted to dig up General Nathan Bedford Forrest's grave and move it. All of this makes me wonder, will my great-grandkids think the Union fought a long war against itself in some weird fit of delusional psychosis? But in all seriousness, I find all of this very creepy in a George Orwell kind of way. I came across a passage from 1984 the other day, and it seems particularly relevant. There's a party slogan dealing with the control of the past, O'Brien said. Repeat it, if you please. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past, repeated Winston obediently. Totalitarian regimes cleanse history. We should be aware of this rising impulse in our society. 1984 was a warning, not an instruction manual. Anyway, as I've listened to all the caterwauling about the Confederate flag, something keeps nagging at my mind. When are people going to start calling for them to bring down the Stars and Stripes? After all, old glory flew over a land of slavery far longer than any Confederate banner. In fact, it was federal power that established, perpetuated, and enforced slavery. Now, this certainly isn't the cartoon version of history you learned in high school, is it? Everybody knows it was the state's rights people that made slavery possible, right? Wrong. In truth, The nationalists and the centralizers own slavery's legacy. Slavers understood that they needed a powerful centralized authority to protect the institution. 
In fact, South Carolina Constitutional Convention Delegate Charles Pinckney presented a plan for the new government early on. It was overshadowed by James Madison's Virginia plan, and it gets very little attention today. But Pinckney yearned for a strong central authority. Historian H. Robert Baker points out that the South Carolina delegation, quote, proved among the most trenchantly nationalist during the secret convention and public ratification debates, unquote. Pinckney left no doubts as to his feelings on this whole idea of state sovereignty during the Philadelphia Convention. Quote, the idea which has so long been falsely entertained of each being a sovereign state must be given up, for it is absurd to suppose there can be more than one sovereignty within a government. Unquote. Pinckney contended that states should retain, quote, nothing more than mere local legislation. Unquote. Not exactly the poster child for states' rights, was he? Pinckney and many Southern delegates recognized a strong national government was necessary to maintain an environment friendly to their economic interests, and those economic interests were all about slavery. While they didn't get the national government they wanted, Southern interests did manage to constitutionalize slavery, particularly through the Fugitive Slave Clause. From the moment the Constitution was ratified, Southern slavers would rely on federal power and centralized authority to enforce the Fugitive Slave Clause and maintain the institution of slavery. Ironically, it was abolitionists in northern states who appealed to state sovereignty to protect their black citizens. Congress passed the first Fugitive Slave Act in 1793. It dictated that the owner of an escaped slave could, quote, seize or arrest, unquote, the fugitive and take him before either a federal judge or a city, county, or town magistrate, quote, upon proof to the satisfaction of such judge or magistrate, unquote, the official was required to issue a certificate of removal. Oral or written testimony by the owner or his agent was sufficient proof. The act also provided penalties for anybody interfering with fugitive slave rendition. Notice, it required federal power to return slaves back into bondage. Now, many northern states passed liberty laws to protect free blacks from kidnapping. These state laws generally acknowledged federal authority, but they added additional conditions dictated by the state. Some required jury trials. Others set up additional proof requirements before removing a fugitive slave from the state. Northern lawmakers argued that while the Constitution required them to return fugitive slaves, state sovereignty meant that they had the authority to impose their own conditions to protect the basic rights of their citizens. Slavers vehemently disagreed and constantly agitated for more federal intervention to protect their property interests from state interference. Pennsylvania was on the forefront of personal liberty legislation. The state legislature passed an anti-kidnapping bill in 1820 and strengthened it in 1826. Supporters appealed to state sovereignty to defend the legitimacy of this legislation. Things came to a head in Pennsylvania in 1842 when a fugitive slave case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. At issue was the snatching of a woman and her child from Pennsylvania by Maryland slave catchers. Margaret Morgan lived in Pennsylvania for many years after her owner set her free, but he never formally manumitted her, and his widow eventually decided she wanted to reclaim her property. 
When a hired slave catcher named Edward Prigg took Morgan and her child back to Maryland, he failed to follow Pennsylvania law. The state eventually served Prigg with an arrest warrant for kidnapping. He asserted that the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 trumped Pennsylvania's law, and he held that the state had no authority to interfere with his slave-catching work. Revered Nationalist Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story wrote the majority opinion in the case, and he agreed with Prigg. Story held that Congress had the sole authority to legislate in the matter of fugitive slave rendition, and state governments could not interfere in any way. This prohibition of state action included state laws designed to protect free blacks from kidnapping. Story later admitted that part of his reasoning was to expand federal power. And it was indeed a mighty blow to state sovereignty. It was a victory for the slavers. They were assured that the federal government would bring its full force and power to bear to protect their institution. Simply put, fugitive slave rendition depended on federal backing. The Prigg decision ultimately led to the even more draconian Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. The new law explicitly denied a black person accused of running away from slavery any shred of due process. He couldn't present evidence or even testify in his own defense. Basically, a white guy could grab any black person up north, say, he's mine, and then haul him off in chains based on nothing more than his good word. There's more. If a federal marshal ordered you to help with slave catching, you were compelled by law to pitch in and help, no matter what you thought about it. Anybody interfering with slave catchers could be fined and even jailed. Finally, the act created a bounty system requiring payment of federal marshals, their deputies, and court clerks. Once again, we see federal power vigorously applied for the benefit of slavers to preserve their institution and protect their property. Ardent nationalists like Daniel Webster had no problem with it. So, you see, it took centralized power to maintain slavery in the United States. It was the Constitution itself that cemented slavery into the American system, and it was federal power that preserved and sustained it. Nationalists used slavery to expand federal power, and slavers depended on the nationalists to protect their interest. Story, Webster, and many others willingly obliged. It was northern states appealing to the principles of state sovereignty that vigorously defended the rights of their black citizens using personal liberty laws to nullify the Fugitive Slave Acts in practice. So, when are we going to haul down the American flag? Well, that's it for this episode of Thoughts from Meharry Head. I really appreciate you listening. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor and spread the word. Make sure you subscribe over at iTunes and feel free to send me any thoughts or ideas at michael.meharry at 10thamendmentcenter.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.